Hello, I'm Matthew Bradbury, and welcome to The Beverage Report, a student-led podcast ran out of the London School of Economics, Department of Economics. Welcome to part two of our conversation with Lord Adair Turner. From 2008 to 2013, Lord Turner chaired the UK's Financial Service Authority, played a leading role in the post-crisis redesign of the global banking, shadow banking regulation. In our first part, we discussed that with him, his time overhauling the financial sector and the parallels he sees to what needs to be done for the health sector in the aftermath of COVID-19. In the second part of the podcast, we'll discuss with Lord Turner his time on the as the first chairman of the Climate Change Committee, which is something he also works on today, being the chair of the Energy Transitions Committee. So in the second part, we'll talk about the economics of climate change and how it's been impacted by COVID-19. We hope you enjoy. So to shift this now to a discussion of climate change and your work yep. um, therein. So first, just for context, you chaired the Committee on Climate Change 2008 to 2012. And you're currently the chair of the NG Transitions Committee. What were those two roles? What did they involve? What did you do? Yeah, well, between 2008 and 2012, um, it was interesting. I had two public sector jobs. I was chair of the FSA, but I was also uh, chair, first chair of the UK Climate Change Committee. And I have to say, the Climate Change Committee job was a joy because I would spend 28 days a month dealing with this completely unnecessary disaster uh, over in the financial system, which we had created by unnecessary human stupidity. Um, And then I'd spend two days a month, you know, addressing issue which humanity was always going to have to deal with. Now, we may not have dealt with it well, but we were always going to have to deal with it. Um, uh, Because there was no way that humanity could not have achieved, we, we, we could not have achieved the breakthrough to modern levels of prosperity without fossil fuels. If you go back to the history of the Industrial Revolution and why does it occur in Britain, first of all, it is you know, inherently linked uh, with coal. If you look at the breakthroughs of uh, the 20th century, um, they are inherently linked with electricity which at the time we needed coal and gas to generate, and with the internal combustion engine. Let's be clear, these have been very, very positive things for humanity. Unfortunately, they have created a greenhouse gas effect that we now have to deal with. But at least the fact that we have to deal with it is is not just a a product of, you know, stupid people believing stupid things. Um, So the job of Uh, the the Climate Change Committee was set up after the UK Climate Change Act of 2006, which committed the UK by 2050 to achieve an 80% reduction in our emissions. In fact, the initial uh, uh, legislation said 60%, and then they asked us our point of view when we were set up as a committee, uh, and we recommended a shift to 80%, which last year, by the way, was shifted to 100%. And the job of the committee really is to say, okay, given that end date, where we have to be by 2050, how do we go from A to B? What is a believable pathway? How do you have to be, you know, if you're to get to that level by 2050, where do you have to be in 2020 and 2030 and 2040? Which technologies do you use? Which sectors uh, can go faster than others? And what are the policies? So that was the job that I did there. 
Uh, and by the way, I think the Climate Change Committee is, is a brilliant creation of the 2006 Act because it creates this expert body independent of government and reporting directly to Parliament to, as a, a force to keep keeping uh, the, the government, you know, holding its foot to the fire of, you've said we're going to get to zero, you know, are we on track, are we not on track, you know, what do we have to do? So that was that. Um, I, in 2012, I handed that on uh, to my uh, successor, uh, John Gummer, uh, and uh, I then also uh, ended at the FSA. I wrote my book because uh, I felt I needed to set out a point of view on macro and financial stability. But with that out of the way in 2015, uh, I dived back into the issue of climate change by becoming chair of a thing called the Energy Transitions Commission, which is a coalition of major companies and environmental NGOs dedicated to meeting the uh, Paris Climate Agreements. And essentially, we have moved on to crystallize that into being, we should meet the IPCC objective of limiting global warming at very least to well below 2 degrees centigrade, ideally 1.5. And the way to do that is to get the whole global economy to net zero emissions by 2050. And the good news is that is technologically doable at a relatively low cost. So we simply have to work out making sure we got the policies to take us from A to B. Well, I'm glad to hear some optimistic news. So in the, in the 12 years that you've been pushing for this change, how have you seen the appetite for action on climate change um, among politicians and the public shift? Because things that have happened recently, Extinction Rebellion, Greta Thunberg, yeah. which does feel like a lifetime ago now, mind. Um, they, they just couldn't have existed in 2008. Yeah. Well, I mean, could they? Would you have disagreed? Well, I think there's been a major step forward in the last five years. And what is interesting is a constellation of quite different things have multiplied uh, to take us forward. Um, one of which is an increasing awareness that climate is changing and that it may be changing even faster than we thought. I mean, if you just look at what has happened to temperatures in the Arctic last summer uh, and indeed uh, over the winter. I mean, you know, the Scandinavian winter this year was bizarre, like sort of 10 degrees above uh, normal levels. Look at the Australian uh, bushfires, um, the Californian uh, bushfires, just relentless, relentless growth of the evidence. Now, I always thought that the evidence available very clearly pointed to global warming. But unfortunately, 10 years ago, it was sufficiently, you know, directionally there that people who wanted to could chuck up chaff by saying, oh, there's this uncertainty in the model and, you know, it's cycling up and down and, you know, why haven't we had a, a, a year as hot as 1998 since? I mean, I think a lot of them were deeply, deeply irresponsible. I mean, they were playing around with five-year trends rather than looking at decadal averages, etc. But they had an effect on the debate. And I think they've had a decreasing effect on the debate because it's just staring us in the face that it's happening. Now, the good news is that alongside that, the costs of getting to net zero have come down. And I have to say, they have come down even faster than we dreamed possible. 
when we started at the Climate Change Committee in uh, 2008, we, of course, looked at all the technologies that could help solve this problem, and in particular, the technologies to decarbonize electricity production. And when we then looked at the uh, price of uh, wind and solar, we said these will come down by because of what are called learning curve effects and economy of scale effects. We understood that. But I have to say, I hope people have destroyed the copies of the reports we produced then because we were just so embarrassingly wrong. We were sitting there saying, oh, by 2020, you know, on an aggressive scenario, maybe solar will come down 30 or 40 percent. It's come down 80 percent or more. Uh, 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 onshore wind has come down 60 or 70 percent. Uh, offshore wind has come down 60 or 70 percent. Batteries have come down uh, 85 uh, percent, the cost of a battery per kilowatt hour. All of this has actually illustrated is a very interesting area of sort of micro-industrial theory. We, we knew about these theories of um, learning curve and economy of scale effects that when you, you know, as you double the cumulative quantity of a particular a product technology that you've applied, you can expect to see um, uh, cost reductions, even if there aren't fundamental technological changes. But we had not realized the power of them. And uh, they've been very powerful. Now, the good news is that that means you can sit down and tell a story of decarbonizing electricity at a very low and possibly nil cost to the economy, which you couldn't tell 10 years ago. So 10 years ago, if you'd asked me, how do we decarbonize um, electricity systems? I'd have said you'd be crazy not to back three technologies, renewables and nuclear, and continued fossil fuel with carbon capture and storage. We now believe that it's absolutely possible to build power systems that are as much as 80 or 85% dependent on variable renewables, wind and solar, and to balance the system to deal with the flexibility. And that changes things, because there's now a much clearer vision of what do you do to decarbonize the economy you essentially electrify everything that you possibly can in the economy and you decarbonize electricity. You take electricity from 25% or so of final energy demand we consume in the form of electricity, and you take that to 60%. You completely decarbonize surface transport, and you also develop a major hydrogen economy which enables you to decarbonize uh, other sectors as well. So I think what has happened over the last 10 years is greater awareness that this is for real and it's rather frightening and we better wake up. And from that comes Extinction Rebellion and Greta Thunberg and what the hell are you doing? And greater awareness that actually we have the tools to do it. And that then is being reflected in an increasing number of corporates making commitments to be net zero by 2050. And by the way, net zero by 2050 is a wonderfully powerful um, discipline. Because as long as you say the aim is for the economy to reduce its emissions by 80% by 2050, any one sector or company can absolutely say, I totally, totally agree with that. 
I just happen myself to be in the last 20%. Once you've got everybody saying it's got to be net zero and it's possible to get to net zero, you really concentrate minds and you have steel companies saying, how am I going to get to net zero? Shipping companies, how am I going to get to net zero? And that is what has changed. And that is, that is a major step forward, which makes me you know, much more optimistic. Now, having said that, we left it late in the day. Um, emissions have still gone up. Uh, we've got to get them down fast. We've got to really try and reduce them by 50% in the next 10 years en route to net zero. This is a race against time, but it's a race against time knowing where the end point is. And the way I sum it up, I am now so confident that these electric technologies are superior that I think even if we discovered that actually climate change was just a hoax and we didn't need to do anything, we'd probably build a completely zero carbon economy by 2100 in any case, uh, because it's just an inherently more efficient economy. The challenge is we've got to do it by 2050, not by 2100. That's, that's the climate change challenge now. So, just, so to discuss that climate change challenge in the light of COVID-19, you spoke very optimistically there about you know, the work that's required to fight climate change and, and how it's good for the economy, how it's efficient, and also how things like insulating houses, putting up wind farms, like it does just involve stimulating aggregate demand because you have to hire someone to yep. do it. How realistic do you think it is that a heavily indebted government coming out of a pandemic will then start a radical policy agenda that's required to fight climate change? Especially when, I mean, we could have used all of this as aggregate demand stimulus after the financial crisis, but instead we got a decade of austerity. I mean, times have changed because austerity is a dirty word now, but it's a difficult context. It it is, um, but let me make two points. First of all, on the macro context, uh, one we touched on right to beginning. Um, I I think one has to reflect what has changed in this macro context. And in two ways, I think it has accelerated trains which are in place in in any case. One I talked about earlier is the acceleration structural trend towards automation of the automatable functions of the economy, just at the time that we've switched off the job creating the team machine of tactile face-to-face services. That means we've got to create jobs. Um, the other which has changed is quite interesting, I think, is a an intensification of what Larry Summers calls the secular stagnation story, um, which I have become convinced of. I've become convinced that there's something fundamental about the uh, balance between attempted ex-ante savings and ex-ante desired, required, intended private investment, which has shifted in the last 30 years uh, and is an explanation of the quite dramatic falls uh, in the equilibrium real risk-free interest rate, which, I mean, it is extraordinary to reflect on. Uh, In the late 1980s, if you had been an insurance company um, and you wanted to match an annuity book liabilities with a completely safe set of risk-free assets, you could have bought a UK 20-year index-linked bond and you would have had a government-guaranteed yield to maturity of 3.5% real, 3.5% plus inflation indexation. That rate of return now 
is minus 2% real. That is what the generous British government will now guarantee you uh, if you buy an index-linked bond. So we have had this, and what has happened is, if you look at the chart, there is a gradual downward uh, movement of that with two points of acceleration, one through the GFC and a further one uh, in the last uh, six months. And I think that this is driven by uh, some real fundamental factors to do with demography, to do with inequality, to do with the low cost of plant and equipment, uh, which is information and communication and technology intensive, which therefore keeps essentially robots and computers keep on getting cheaper. Put that all together, and I think we live in a world, and the best things to read on this, I think, are um, uh, there's a book by, uh, there's an article by Rachel Lucas and Larry Summers in uh, Brookings uh, uh, papers last, last April, uh, and an earlier one uh, by Rachel Lucas and uh, Thomas Smith in the Bank of England about three years ago. Um, if you look at those, I think there's a very reasonable case that that story is going to continue. Now, if we are in that environment, the social cost of borrowing to invest for the future is low. And in that environment, it ought to be the case that you are searching for good, sensible things to do for the benefit of the future, because the capital markets are screaming at you, um, you know, the cost of capital is minus 2% real. How does this play out into increased investment in renewable energy? It might involve the use of the government balance sheet. And I think what we will see coming out of this crisis is a greater relaxation about the use of the government balance sheet. I do not think we are going to see the determination to hit uh, the uh, austerity break in the same way that we did in 2010. And I think the message, which is, guys, if I'm a government and I can borrow money for 20 years at minus 2% real, you know, I don't need to be quite as worried about fiscal deficits as I was, you know, as I thought I was in the past. But it may not need the government balance sheet. May what it need is thoughtful government policy to take risk off the table. Because private capital in this environment ought also to be looking for investment opportunities. So, wild thunder here, um, uh, for investment opportunities, um, in the sense of, um, you know, if you are an institutional investor and a safe investment in the government bond is minus 2% real, and somebody do, does a whacking great uh, a offshore wind development in the North Sea and packages it up and says, here is a relatively safe um, return, and it's going to give you plus 2% real, I mean, you ought to you know, bite the hand off uh, to get that. And that says that government policy, which through future carbon pricing, through quantitative targets to have auctions for offshore wind, through a power market structure, which gives to renewables provider a certainty of a future price, if you do all that, you ought to be able to unleash a private capital flow at a low rate of return, even if you don't necessarily put it uh, on the balance sheet. So I think thoughtful policy should be involving a willingness to run 
higher deficits than in the past. Uh, I would say also recognizing that if you need to monetize them, you can uh, and you probably will. And that says be relatively relaxed about public you know, programs that support the insulation of homes and houses and, and, and offices and, and public uh, buildings, remembering that those sort of jobs inherently have a high multiplier because they have no import content and inherently are everywhere across the society because, you know, there are buildings everywhere. So they're just exactly what you want in a stimulus impact uh, point. Uh, they're not regionally concentrated and they don't have a big, you know, import removal from the multiplier. Um, do that with a relative relaxation about the, uh, the uh, public finance consequences of that. And uh, on the investment side, maybe use the public balance sheet, but probably to a greater extent, get all the other aspects of policy right so that you provide enough certainty uh, that private finance steps up and increases its level of investment. We always knew pandemics could happen and we always knew financial crises could happen. And yet none of us realized, we didn't prepare and none of us realized how much they would drastically change our life for the worse. So we also all know that climate change will happen, but it's very often neglected by governments for the same reason that we neglected pandemic planning and for the same reason we, were un, we, were, we didn't want to stop Goldman Sachs from running off with all their CDOs. How do you feel that the experience of lockdown has just changed the desire for fighting climate change? Because now we've been made very aware that these big nebulous threats in the distance aren't quite so nebulous and aren't quite so distant. Yeah, I think it's interesting. I mean, at one level, they're the same. At one level, there's a subtle difference. You know, the financial crisis was an intellectual error where not only did we ignore the possibility of a sudden event, we told ourselves a story that the very things that had increased risk had reduced risks. I mean, that's the extraordinary irony of the financial crisis. I can show you stuff from the IMF Financial Stability Review of April 2006, which are peons of praise to credit default swaps and securitization, and which in a wonderful phrase say, it is now clear that these uh, financial innovations have reduced the probability of major financial you know, uh, a, a, a crisis. So that was an intellectual error where we told ourselves the wrong thing. Uh, COVID-19 is, we always ought to know in the health environment that there is a probability of those events, but it is one of these, we don't know it's going to occur. It's a small probability event, and when it occurs, it suddenly occurs. That is subtly different from climate change, which is it's certain to occur and it's gradually occurring over a period of time. So we need to think about the slight difference there. But I think there is enough commonality that it was it's something which at any one time we have the option of ignoring. Right. And between September and December last year, ignoring. COVID-19, within that period of time, ignoring the possibility of a big virus breaking out, within that period of time, had no impact whatsoever on our living standard. So we weren't willing to invest in that period of time, 
because in that period of time, nothing was going to manifest itself. And climate change is similar. You know, between September and December, not all that much happens or not all that much we, which we could avoid happens, which hits our standard of living. You know, the things are going to happen in future. So it is about various forms of myopia, either about things which are on the risk distribution of events existing at any one time or about, you know, the, the far future. And, you know, we know that we are very bad at discounting the future uh, sensibly, the whole issue of hyperbolic discount rates, etc. Now, I think the good news is that this, I, I, I think, broadly speaking, coming out of COVID-19, it's been such a big event that along with the increasing awareness of the gradual increase of the dangers of climate change, I think we will get a shift in the politics to increasingly take seriously the need to deal with these sort of problems. I think there will be much less tolerance of ignoring them, um, much more willing to invest uh, to deal with them. So that is a good uh, impact, but we need to work on it and we need to make sure that memories are not short. Now, I think the point about climate change is that the danger on financial services, let's be blunt, has always been that once we get to 2039, there'll be another this time is different story. You know, and I know we hadn't in 2007, but now, now we've discovered the, the brilliant financial risk control techniques, you know, and that by then, you know, none of the guys who were around in the crisis of 2008 will be in the financial regulators, all the financial regulators and central banks, the guys who are in charge will have had 20 years where nothing nasty has happened. You know, that is the danger that we, we forget about these things. And we need to try and create institutional mechanisms that don't allow us to uh, forget and which keep up the pressure uh, even uh, even in the good years where you know nothing bad is happening but you know it clearly is a challenge uh, for uh, human society but I think the good news is that at least for now COVID-19 will have made us more aware of the need to produce to reinforce resilience in our health systems in our climate systems and probably in many other systems across the economy. People are thinking about that general theme of resilience to a greater extent. It's interesting hearing you say that, because that was one thing that Alistair Darling just said almost word for word, that the day he's yeah. terrified of is when the last guy retires that was there. <laughs> <I know. laughs> yeah. yeah, that is it, yeah. Um, so just, just chatting about like your role as almost a public intellectual, listening to your talks, reading your books, there are a lot of ideas about how to make the world a better place. Um, for example, your book 2015, highlighting the problems of rising debt or proposing for solutions like in the implementation of monetary finance, something which, I mean, I read monetary finance, panicked, thought of Weimar Germany, read the discussion and realized it was more of a nuanced policy debate than I and A-level economics had had me realize. But for you, what's the process from like having an idea to, to making it a reality or implementing or lobbying into policy? And why is it that you've done that? Um, why is it you've never worked as a politician to achieve those? Well, 
The latter is the easy bit to explain, which is um, I was a student politician. When I was at Cambridge, I was president of the debating union and I was chairman of the Conservative Association at that time because I thought the biggest threats to the sort of society I wanted at that time came from a sort of simplistic uh, uh, socialism. Um, However, I then left the Conservative Party in 1981 and joined the SDP because I was always a sort of centralist, a, a sort of uh, a, a believer in a, a, a market economy with strong social characteristics. My intellectual heroes were, were John Maynard Keynes, but also Karl Popper and the whole open society and its enemies, which talks about you mustn't attempt to do utopian uh, social engineering, but you can make the world better in a piecemeal basis. And I think what I then slowly realized in the course of the 1980s that I was useless staying in any party um, because I actually ended up, and it was really a mistake, I ended in the David Owens rump breakaway uh, from the SDP alliance. And I felt completely ideologically at home. And there were about four of us. And what this taught me was that I was really no good at being in a party with which I didn't totally agree. I was no good at the necessary process when you support a party of going on television and being asked a question where they say, well, isn't this a really stupid policy that your party uh, proposes? Internally thinking, yes, it is one of the ones that I really disagree with, but somehow supporting the party line. You know, I just realized I was useless at that. And so I made a decision, and it took till the middle of the 80s, that whereas originally I had thought about becoming a politician, that, you know, I was going to play, I wanted to play a role in public policy, but it had to be in a somewhat, you know, technocratic, uh, you know, a, a, a role and a non-party role, which is why I've ended up as a cross-bench independent member of the House of Lords, and it's why I've ended up doing a series of uh, roles in public policy, uh, chairman of the Pensions Commission, chairman of the Low Pay Commission, chairman of the FSA, chairman of the, the Climate Change Committee, which are apolitical, um, but all ones to which I try to bring their facts. Now, just one thing to add, I absolutely do not disparage at all the necessary process of politics. The process of politics, of being an elected politician, of taking the, the potentially completely incompatible demands of your constituents and modulating them and at one level responding to them, but another level trying to, you know, turn them into something workable, that is, that is a noble objective nor do I disparage party discipline. You, you can't run governments without some degree of party discipline. You can't have 630 MPs, every one of whom thinks that they'll make their mind up on every particular day of what they feel about it. So there are there is a, 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 a hugely valuable process, but it's just not for me. Um, how I hope I can add value in public policy um, is by approaching issues in a fact and analytical basis, but a fact and analytical basis, which also thinks about the political reality of what can be achieved, and which also thinks carefully about how you persuade people to that political reality. So, for instance, when I was chair 
of the Pensions Commission uh, back in 2003 to six, uh, along with Jeannie Drake and John Hills uh, of the, uh, the LSE, um, we did a lot of analysis of the fundamental problem of why wasn't there enough uh, support for future pension provision, and that involved empirical analysis, um, uh, theoretical analysis, and we developed an idea of what the shape of the solution was. But we also put an enormous amount of effort into public engagement and to stakeholder engagement. I mean, we, we had whole day meetings, uh, I remember, with all of the representatives of the TUC, the Association of British Insurers, the National Association of Pension Fund, uh, Help the Aged, all three major political parties, you know, really just going through uh, in detail, deliberately saying, this is, this is what we think will occur if we don't change policy in some way. Are we all agreed that that is the case? Um, okay, we are all agreed that. This is what we think is the suite of possible answers. Does everybody agree that that is the suite of possible answers? You know, so it is a fact based. It is a, a process based on trying to persuade people. Um, and hopefully, you know, within and within the context of a cut and thrust of a, a, a political process, um, it's, a, it's a useful addition to that. And I think... What that reflects is that in many areas of public policy, every now and then we try and take some aspects away from that short-term public policy arena and create the possibility of a long-term focus. Sometimes we do that by actually giving the actual decision to an independent trusted body. And that's what we've done with inflation targeting and the Monetary Policy Committee of the Bank of England. Sometimes we do it by setting up a commission like the Pensions Commission, which recommends, but it's ultimately for government to do. And sometimes we do it like the Climate Change Committee, where we say, yes, we know what the objective should be. You are now set up to be, you know, our keeping us honest on that path that we've already agreed. So there are a set of devices but each of those devices, you know, do sort of end up um, a, 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 a peopled by people who in different ways, uh, you know, whether they be at the Bank of England, the FSA, the Climate Change Committee, uh, the Pension Commission, are the technocrats of public policy. And, you know, we have to be humble that politicians, you know, have got the really difficult job of ultimately gaining majority support for it, but there is still a useful role for that job. It's the role that I've chosen to play, and it's a role that requires thinking through things in an intellectual analytical sense, but always doing so in a way which is aware of the political context and doesn't just turn up and say, you know, I think in a perfect world, you should do X, you know, you're an idiot if you don't do it. You know, you, you do have to understand the constraints within which politics is working. 
So most of our listeners are economics undergrads uh, with a very long summer ahead and probably can't really see their friends. What are five books that you think every economics undergrad student should read? Every economics undergrad student, if they haven't read it, should read Keynes's General Theory, right? Absolutely a great book. Do you know, I actually would read Knut Vixell's Interest and Prices because I think it makes you think about the way that a thoughtful person like that approached economics. It's almost useful to force yourself to you know, look at economics in a completely uh, different uh, fashion. On debt, uh, I would probably read Atif Mian and Amir Sufi, The House of Debt. I do think the issue of fragility is uh, important, and I I actually do think that uh, uh, Nicholas Nassim Taleb's uh, book on Black Swan uh, is worth reading. And after I read that, I'd read Anna Karenina and Northanger Abbey, because you need to read the great novels, um, uh, as well as spending all your life uh, reading uh, economics. Perfect. And then finally, what gives you hope? Well, look, um, what gives me hope is, I do think in a bizarre way, human life slowly gets better. Uh, I, I, I am actually in the sort of Stephen, actually, read Stephen Pinker, uh, Better Angels of Our Nature, because I think it's a very thoughtful book. And it's the book that says, look, guys, we worry about warfare. We worry about violence. You know, here's the story of human violence per capita uh, over the last, as best we can tell, 10,000 years. And by the way, the long-term trend is down, not up. The, the, The basic point that humans as a complex evolved species are capable of simply reacting in ways which are deeply selfish, deeply irrational, and which reflect, you know, the fact that we are animals like any other, but the fact which uh, Pinker explores that we are also, because that process of evolution randomly happen to produce a prefrontal cortex capable of complex thoughts, capable of complex social interactions, out of which there was a need for altruistic action, which is there within us in any case, and that's why he calls it the better angels of our nature. You know, that thesis, you know, I I think is there. I don't think it means that we will necessarily get through this 21st century without disaster. I think we might have nuclear wars, and I think we might go backwards. But I once wrote an article called The Possibility of Optimism, right? That, that, that one of the answers is human beings may slowly increment towards a better result. And, you know, I think even if you think uh, the balance of probabilities is, is almost exactly equal, at least spend your life attempting to pick a feather up from the nasty side of that balance and put it on the good side is, is a worthwhile thing to do. So that gives me a uh, benefit. Uh, uh, and the other is technology. Look, the sun shines down on us. 90 million miles away, there is a massive, totally, totally safely placed uh, nuclear fusion plant. 
it shines down on us each day 8,000 times as much energy uh, as we uh, need um, uh, to run human society. We will, during the course of the 21st century, find ways to capture uh, that energy uh, in ways which will make energy incredibly cheap. Once energy is incredibly cheap, we can make uh, aviation fuel in a synthetic fashion that enables you to fly in zero carbon planes. We will also electrify short distance planes. It will also, I believe, enable us to make uh, synthetic meats and synthetic carbohydrates that mean that in order to meet the diets we want, we don't need uh, to destroy the beauty of the natural world. And if you put together the Steven Pinker possibility of optimism about human nature's ability to um, uh, 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 cooperate, and you try and nurture that, and alongside the technological possibility um, that uh, we can, you know, have standards of livings, Western standards of livings, everybody can enjoy that without destroying the natural environment. Um, you know, that creates the possibility of, of, of optimism, those two together. Lord Adetana, thank you for your time. Great, thank you. And to you, the listener, we thank you for listening, and we hope you tune in again next time. Thank you.